First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9, the end result of your faith is what we're focusing on. Let's read starting in verse 3 here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to consider this end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls by considering Peter's salvation and our salvation. Now, if you think about Peter and you scroll through the timeline of his life, uh, he is well suited to make these statements because all of these things that he talks about and these transformations and this experience and what he's pointing to, he's gone through it. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for us even as we are beginning these two epistles and we have been reminded of Peter's apostleship, his authority, his calling, his commission, the fact that he was, he was ordained of God to do these things. It is an opportunity for us to also go back and consider his timeline and to think about or to look and see where he comes from and what he did. And if you consider this early part of his life, we don't know much about the very early part, but we know that he is brought to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, brings him to Jesus. His name is Simon, right? And his, when he's brought to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, you will be called Cephas, or in, which, is, which means stone in Aramaic. And that word stone translated into Greek is Petros, which then translated into English, we end up with Peter. But he was not born where his parents named him Peter. The parents named him Simon. And then Jesus looks at him and calls him Cephas, stone, Petros, Peter. Right? And we get to that 
right away at the beginning. But very quickly after that, we see that while Peter and Andrew are fishing at the Sea of Galilee, so Peter is introduced to Jesus in that way. He probably was familiar with or at least had heard about Jesus or knew something because there's an association with others in, in Capernaum and other in Galilee, around Galilee, um, that would have probably heard about Jesus or there's some reference to. It's not that big a place as such. And so we then see that Peter and Andrew are fishing and Jesus comes to them and calls them and he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? So we see these and Peter leaves the things, Peter leaves the boat at that time and then follows Jesus. And then we read of how he casts his net in the ocean when he's fishing all night and, or in the sea. And then Jesus tells them to cast the net on the other side and they have this big catch of fish. And then we see him witnessing the miracles that Jesus is doing. And then we have this account of Jesus coming to the disciples when they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and that there was a storm and Peter, Peter is in the boat and they're fighting against the winds and the waves and Jesus comes walking to them on the water and Peter says... Uh, and the first the disciples are, are, are terrified. And then Peter says to Jesus, if it's you, Lord, uh, tell me to come out walking on the water. And Jesus says, sure, come. Come on up. And Peter actually walks on the water. And then, because he sees the winds and the waves, when he takes his eyes also off of Jesus, he looks at the winds and the waves, he starts to sink. And the Bible says, even though he was very... He was very capable of swimming. He doesn't attempt to swim back to the boat. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him. And then they are brought into the boat. Right? We read about that. So very interesting stories, wonderful stories. And then we, thought, we see that, you know, when we're a little further along there in Caesarea Philippi, and then, you know, uh, uh, Jesus says, uh, who, do you, who, does, who do people say I am or who, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. He declares that. And Jesus says to him, oh, this is not brought to you by human revelation. The Father, the Lord, God, Yahweh has revealed this to you. But almost soon after that, when Jesus says that he's going to be killed and he'll be buried and then he'll be resurrected and he's speaking about that, Peter rebukes him and he says, oh, you know, this should not happen. Because even though he's got revelation from God, he's got the mix of his own mind and his own thinking and his own desires and his own ambitions and his own fears and everything else. And he says, oh, no, this won't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Meaning what? You have received revelation from God, but you're also being affected by Satan. And so here's this man, Peter, going through all these things. You know, and then we see Peter along with James and John in that inner circle coming up on the Mount of Transfiguration, witnessing at least or getting at least a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. All these things going on. And then later on, as we come closer to the time of the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter says, oh no, even if all of these, meaning all of these other disciples, these lesser disciples, even if all of they deny you, oh, I will never deny you. And Jesus says, when you have fallen, after you are restored, come and you know, minister, come and be the, you know, the Peter that you need to be, the rock that you need to be with the other disciples. And then 
we read of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter there and sleeping and then Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the sword and the ear of the, uh, of the servant. And I mean, he's just like this, you know, all of the stuff that's going on and then we, we see very much that he's in, you know, in the company of the people that are putting Jesus to death the soldiers and the others that are standing there and he denies Jesus three times you know it's not it's not a casual denial it's not just oh, oh you know no I, I don't think so. he he curses the Bible says he curses and he says no I don't know this man right and then Jesus turns looks at him and he weeps bitterly because he knows what he has done it was not something trivial it wasn't just a fear he he goes all out and denies Jesus but then we have this whole account of the resurrection of Jesus. And then the Bible says in Luke 24, and even Paul makes reference to this in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appears to Peter before even appearing to the other disciples. And then he appears with the leaven that were gathered in the closed room. And then Jesus breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit and so on. And then after all of that, Peter is still conflicted. He's not sure what exactly they should do, how they should do things. And he says, I'm going to go back fishing. And then Jesus appears on the bank, calls out to them, asks them to catch the fish. And then Peter swims to the shore. And there Jesus has this meal ready. And then Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And just as he had denied Jesus three times, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's an opportunity for Peter to reaffirm, to be cleansed, to be redeemed from those denials. And the very first time that Jesus asked him the question, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Because you know what Peter had said? I won't deny you even if all of these deny you. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And Peter has to confront all of these things and he has to come to the Lord in humility and he has to say Lord you know my heart you know you know all things but then from that point forward we start to see this change start to take place and then on the day of Pentecost the Bible says Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands up boldly and he declares this this man this fisherman you know illiterate maybe or at least not as learned as the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders and everybody, but he stands up and he declares the word of God with power and authority. 3,000 people are saved. They are joined to the church and we see these miracles and the works of the Lord starting to take place. Mighty things are starting to happen and as the manifestation of the Spirit is taking place, he's starting to minister in these ways. The shadow of Peter falling on people causes them to be healed I and mean, things are just you know being changed completely and then he the Lord uses him to minister to Cornelius and now the word of God is starting to spread outside of the Jewish believers and into the Gentile world and the the word of God is spreading in such a way that the church is growing and Peter as one of those established leaders of the church is imprisoned then he is released from prison by the angel I mean you read these stories of Peter and what's going on and it's just amazing wonderful wonderfully encouraging it is you know the Bible presents Peter with all of his faults all of his all of his shortcomings all of his you know bad behaviors it, the Bible presents all of that so that we can see 
and we can relate to him and say, yeah, you know, I, I would have done the same thing. And yet the Lord takes and redeems. We sang about it even today. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. That's the kind of God that we serve who runs after us, who pursues us. And so that's the kind of experience that Peter goes through. And finally, at the end of his life, probably about 30, 40 years after that choosing of the Lord, Peter is then crucified. According to church tradition, we don't have this in the Bible itself, but according to church tradition, what we know is that Peter was crucified in Rome. And apparently, he asked, he requested that he not be crucified upright, but rather upside down, so that it would not be as, the, as Jesus was crucified. He said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way. <laughs> he said, crucify me upside down. And that's the, that's the church's account of what happened to Peter at the very end, that during the great persecution that Nero then inflicts on Christians in Rome, that Peter and Paul, and that around that same time, are put to death. So, Again, I, I, I encourage you to go through these events of Peter. I've left out some of the details. But I want to ask you this question as you listen to this. When, because, because Peter's talking about receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I want to ask you this question. When was Peter saved? When was Peter saved? Was he saved when he first came to Jesus and Jesus called him? Peter named him differently, identified him as something new. Could you not say that he was born again at that point? When was, Jesus, when was Peter saved? Was he saved when Jesus chose him as a disciple? Because we talked about it even last week that we are chosen by God by the fore, in the foreknowledge and in the plan of God that he would choose us. So when Jesus chose Peter as his disciple. Was he saved then? If you go further and you see that, you know, when, when he was sinking in the water, after he was walking on it, when he was sinking on the water and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out and saves him both physically and spiritually, truly. Was that when Peter was saved? You know, and when you look at how Peter continues... And he receives that revelation from the Father about the Son, and he testifies of that, speaks it. Was that when he was saved? Was that when he had the change or transformation of the Holy Spirit? And then as you continue to read about his life, and then, you know, Jesus appearing to Peter later, and then, you know, sort of restoring him and saying, look, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. Was that when he was truly saved, truly transformed. And then later on, when he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands as a witness for the Lord and he ministers in the power of the Holy Spirit, was that when he was saved? The reason I'm asking that question is because our answer is not so simple. We don't start out by saying it was at this point in time, it was in this event, it was this way. What we are saying is, what was the trajectory of his life? Because the end result of our faith is the salvation of our souls, which means salvation has to do with a 
initial, a continuous progressive sanctification, and a final realization of our salvation in Christ Jesus, either when we die or Christ returns. Salvation is not a simple one-time thing. I, I made a confession. I accepted the Lord Jesus. I was saved when I came forward in a meeting and at the altar and so on. Those are wonderful points in time in our Christian journey and need to be commemorated, need to be celebrated, need to be pointed back to as the memorials. But we don't simply say, well, I came and did that that one time, now I can do whatever I want. No, the Bible calls us to live out that salvation so that there is an end result. And so the salvation that Peter experiences, that transforming power of the Holy Spirit and of the Lord Jesus in his life that he has experienced over these years, finally leads him to say all that he does in these epistles, to speak that with confidence. And so the process that he goes through is a similar process to us. So when we think about Peter's salvation, it is truly our salvation also. That we would say, as it is described in verses 3 and 4, that God has brought us into, that God has given us, that God has caused a new birth. Now, as I'm describing this, it is not a new birth like we would experience in the physical. The new birth that each of us experience, for some of us, maybe in the moment of an eye, you know, in, in a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye, we are, we are transformed. For others, it may be that there's a longer time period into which, through which the Lord brings us into the new life, into new birth. For others, it may be that they have gone through and experienced something and then there was some, some kind of effect of the evil one, of the world, the flesh, all of that. And then the Lord brings about another transformation and change and rebuking of the devil. And then there is the salvation that comes. And so there are stages of change and change, transforming change that's happening in our lives. But here, the point is that whatever that may be, God is giving us, God is causing a new birth. We are born again when we believe, when we receive, when we accept the Lord Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for the remission of our sins. When we confess, when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we do that, we respond to what the Lord is doing. He chooses us, He brings us into new birth. He delivers us, right? He's the one that brings us into new, into new life in that sense. And then, and, and he, he states that in verses 3 and 4 here, Peter states this in, in, in two different ways. He says, we are brought or given new birth into a living hope, into a living hope, hope for the future, expectation for what the Lord will do, meaning this salvation that the Lord has initiated is going to be culminated when he returns or we die, when we are joined with him for eternity. So he says, we have a living hope. We are looking forward to the Messiah's return. We have that hope and it 
causes us to live our lives out in strength and in hope and in joy and all of the peace of God, even in spite of the circumstances. Remember, they're being persecuted. These, these, the believers in Asia Minor are being persecuted. And so he says to them, we have been brought into this new birth through and for into a living hope. And then he says, we have been brought into new birth to have an inheritance, to have an eternal life with God that can never perish or spoil or fade. Everything else that we would invest in will spoil or fade or perish or not achieve the, the, the happiness or the outcome that we were hoping for. But he says, you have been brought into a new life so that you can inherit this eternal inheritance from the Lord. That's the power of the Lord Jesus. This is the resurrection. No, this is the process of salvation that, G that Peter is referring to. But then he makes this very important statement. We are brought into this new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we were studying 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so some time ago when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as you can read the whole chapter, but I want to remind you of some of the verses that we read there because Paul says things in, that, in those verses that are very similar to what Peter is saying here. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. But then he goes on, Paul goes on in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Throughout history, it's very clear that what transformed the Christians, what caused them to persevere in the light of or in the face of extreme suffering was the fact that they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. Paul says, if you don't know that, if that was not true, if there was no resurrection from the dead, your faith is futile. All these things that we're talking about don't make sense. We would be lying. We would be saying things about God that are not true. He says, but because Jesus rose from the dead, we have this hope. That's the same thing that Peter is saying. He says, we have been brought into new birth, into new life. We have been given this living hope. How? Why? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we think about this and we understand this, this process of salvation that is taking place, you have to ask yourself, what do I believe? Do I simply say, yes, I know that Jesus came into the world? Do I say, do I believe that Jesus was a good man, that he was a good teacher, that he expressed himself eloquently to all the people, they were amazed at his teaching, and maybe he even did some things that were, you know, like miracles and feeding the poor and feeding the hungry, doing all of that stuff, rebuking and, you know, casting out demons. He did some good things like that. Is that where it stops? And even if you acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross, that even if you acknowledge that he died for the sacrifice or the sins of the people, do, do you truly embrace that? Or is that something that is a confused point in your mind or a partial thought or something that does not extend to truly accepting the full measure or the full statement of the gospel message. Because the gospel message is not just about what Christ did when he came into the world, but it is all about Christ being resurrected from the dead. He could have stopped at the cross and been buried in a tomb. And today there could have been a body that we could have gone and seen and said, oh, Jesus is buried there. But it wasn't. We are able to say that the salvation message goes all the way through the resurrection and his return. And that's what gives us hope. And that is a, that is a tough point for others to come to. Because the moment you say that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it distinguishes you from everything else. You, you, you know, because you can easily believe in a good teacher. You can even easily believe in a good religion. You can easily believe in a good fellowship. But when you say I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he's the first fruits of what I believe in or what is going to happen to me and I will also be resurrected like him when he returns, now you've gone into a different category. And that is possible to believe, to accept, to receive only if you are in the Lord Jesus, chosen by him, sanctif being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, paying attention to the process of salvation, eagerly expecting the end result. Which brings us to the point of application. I want to spend a little time on this. You see, the call to us 
when we hear this, when we understand this, when we see how the process of salvation was taking place in Peter's life and how the process of salvation takes place in our life, ultimately the call to us and the application for us is that we are called to keep the faith. We have to persevere till the end. We have to have the end result of our faith, which is the salvation, the culmination of our salvation. Now in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, it says this, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome or the end of their way of life. Consider the end of their life and then imitate their faith. Many times we are quick to imitate the trend, the fad, the thing that's happening. But the Bible is asking us to pay attention to the end to say, what is the outcome? You can make all sorts of statements. People, people have done this. Peter did this. He made all sorts of statements. You know, he said, I will never you know, forsake you. Or, you are the Messiah. I mean, he made statements. But it was necessary for a transforming work of God to take place so that we can look at the end of his days and say, I can imitate his faith. He had all sorts of difficulties. He had all sorts of flaws but I can imitate his faith. Why? Because I see where the end result was. I see how the Lord worked through the lifeline, through the timeline of his existence on earth. And so I can imitate his faith. That's where we need to be. How you finish is very important. You can't finish strong in your own strength. You need the strength and the power of the Lord by faith. Which is why when you come back to verse 4, it speaks about the inheritance that is kept in heaven for you because of this salvation. But it says in verse 5, you, this inheritance is kept for you. Why or how? Because you through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You're exercising faith, and when the armor of God is described in the book of Ephesians, what does it say? Take up the shield of faith. Here, Peter is referring to that and saying, you are shielded by your faith. You're shielded. You are protected. You are preserved so that you may persevere. You are kept safe in Christ Jesus until he returns. You are shielded by God's power. So you believe, you trust the faith that you're exercising. It's not the faith, your faith, that preserves you. It is the faith that you're exercising in God who preserves you. And you're saying the power of the Lord is sufficient to keep me, to preserve me. I don't have to say I have started salvation or salvation has begun in me and now it's up to me to maintain it. We say salvation has begun in me. The Lord has brought me into new life, into new birth. He's given me this living hope and now He shields me by His power to continue in this salvation. And then when He keeps His promise to return, He will finish this salvation. And so we are coming to the Lord and saying, Lord God, help me to trust in you. But in verse 7 it says this. Peter is writing and he says, these, meaning these sufferings, 
these sufferings of grief in all kinds of trial, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is, is revealed. This gold that the Lord is speaking about, this, the very treasure that he then gives to us and is allowing for us to be held or to hold in these jars of clay, when that gold is refined, he's saying all the impurities are removed, all those things that are not to be there are burnt away. When the fire comes on gold, gold cannot be destroyed by fire. Gold is refined by fire. Right? The impurities in gold rise to the surface and you're able to skim it off. You're able to remove it. All those things that are in there. But the gold itself is not destroyed. It doesn't burn like wood would burn. It doesn't get destroyed. It doesn't become ash. It's refined. And when it's refined in that way, the Bible is saying even if you think of gold in that way and that you know, all these things are there, these sufferings, these trials, these testings, these things affecting your body, these things affecting your mind, these things affecting your spirit, these are meant to refine you so that you will be preserved as gold in the Lord. And then what? When he returns, then it, Peter says, may this result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you know that phrase is actually not about us giving praise, glory, and honor to God? That phrase actually means that God is giving praise, glory, and honor to us. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Well done that you have persevered that you have stayed faithful, that you have been obedient, that in the midst of all the suffering and all the calamities and all the distress, that you relied on my strength and my power, that you, in the midst of all the attacks, lifted up the shield of faith with which you quenched all the fiery darts of the evil one, that you, in the midst of all of these difficult times, you looked to me and you were faithful. See, though you have not seen him, Verse 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter said, I have seen the Lord Jesus. I have seen the resurrected Lord. He appeared to me, and I have put my trust in him. For you who have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's the reality that the Lord calls us to. Not, not, again, by the way, this doesn't mean that you won't have sadness, that you won't have suffering, that you won't have trials of all kinds, that you won't have difficult circumstances. Those are promised to you. They don't, in fact, when it says you, you, have, you have been going you know, through the sufferings that are, that are kept, the, the, the phrase that he's using before that, in terms of the sufferings of all, uh, sufferings of all of grief in all kinds of trial, he's not saying if you suffer, he's saying because you will suffer. You know, just expect that. Expect that. When you suffer, because you will suffer, remember that the Lord is giving you the strength. 
He will purify you. He will guard you and so on. But now as we come to this closing or come to the end of it, he says, you know, you know that as you are relying on the Lord in this way, you have this inexpressible and glorious joy. The joy of the Lord that will be our strength. The joy of the Lord that will sustain us. The joy of the Lord that allows us to deal with people that are difficult and all sorts of circumstances that, that try us that try our patience, that go at us, and we're able to say, Lord, I thank you for your inexpressible and glorious joy because through these we are receiving the end result of our faith. Oh, this morning I want to encourage you that there is an end result of our faith. There is a joy that is set before us. There is a glory and an honor and a, and a wonderful reality that awaits us when the Lord returns, when he joins us to himself. The salvation of our souls, oh, we look forward to it. We thank the Lord for what he has begun, for what he has initiated in us, for what he is continuing to do in us. Oh, but we look forward with joy, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We look forward to when he will consummate all of that and we have the salvation of our souls complete oh what a joy what a privilege what a life that's the life that we live on this earth in spite of all the things that happen in spite of what we hear we're able to say Lord God thank you for the salvation that you have given Heavenly Father we thank you so much Lord that, Lord, Peter was, Lord, personally able. He had experienced the things that he spoke of. And he's personally able to say, this is the Lord and this is what he has done. Lord, he's able to testify of the goodness of God and of your joy being his strength. We thank you, Lord, that because of that, we are encouraged this morning to stand, to keep standing, to remain, to persevere, Lord, to not give up, because the end result of our faith, the outcome, the end point is that we will receive the full salvation of our souls. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. Thank you, Lord, for that, that eager hope, that eager living hope. Thank you, Lord, for what you have what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. Thank you, Lord, so much. We are so grateful. And because of that, Lord, we are able to fellowship with one another. We are able to encourage one another. And Lord, we are able to pray for one another. If we had no joy, if we had no hope, if we had no end result of salvation, how could we speak to other, each other? We would be lying to each other. We would, Lord, be futile in our faith. But, Lord, because of all that you have done, because you were resurrected from the dead, we have this hope. Thank you. Lord God, I pray for each one of us and everybody listening to this, that, Lord, we will know you. We will know the risen Savior. And we will trust you so that, Lord, we will be brought in, each and every one of us, brought in to this new birth in Christ Jesus through his resurrection. May it be so, Lord. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.